Welcome to the podcast. My name is Tatiana Fallon. Um, you're listening to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast. I'm here with founder Don Milne, and we're discussing stories that were completed during our Utah project that um, was finished back in 2020. Um, this was a project that included lots of volunteers from all over the all over the nation trying to get all the names done for one state. So, uh, Don, do you want to jump in and, and tell us the story you've prepared? Yes, today we're going to share a story about uh, Private First Class Fred Yamamoto. Doesn't really sound like a name you associate with Utah. Um, this was uh, written by Randy Hervey. He's from Colorado, and he actually helped write more than 90 of the 2,100 stories that we ended up doing for uh, the Utah project. So if you're wondering how this Fred Yamamoto ended up getting associated with Utah, um, after the war, both the Navy and the Army co collected a record of all the fallen from both services. And his name ended up being associated with Utah because the uh, names were associated with where someone was enrolled from. So although he has more of an association with California, um, he's not on the California list. So it's, it's, we did it for Utah because he might not be located as quickly if we wait until we do the California project. What'll happen is if his name is found during the California project, people will see, oh, his name is already done for Utah and uh, we don't have to worry about it. We just don't want to have any names fall through the cracks. So that's kind of the best list we have to start with is it's now called the National Archive Records uh, list. And that's kind of where we start with the names that we're working on. You have to supplement it with other sources because it's not complete, but it's kind of a good starting point. So anyway, um, even though he's a, he's a Utah fallen, he's probably more would be a, a California fallen. He was born in uh, Glenwood, California, on October 19th of 1918, his father, Sietaro Yamamoto, his mother's name, Yumi Tanaka. Both his parents were born in Japan and immigrated to California. And when Fred was nine years old, his father died. So his mother remarried. And so he was raised by his stepfather, Kihachi Sato. And Mr. Sato owned and managed grocery stores in the area. Fred happened to be his mother's middle child. So he had an older brother and a younger sister. And then he had uh, some uh, stepsisters and uh, from his mom's new marriage. And then there was another stepbrother uh, from his mom's second marriage, so half-brother. Um, when Fred was a baby, his mother moved from Southern California to Santa Clara County in the Bay Area. So he was pretty much raised in downtown Palo Alto, California, it was kind of known as Japantown. A lot of people had area of Japanese descent. He graduated from Palo Alto High School in June of 1936. And then he went to San Jose Teachers College for two years. But then he had to leave to help run the family grocery business. By uh, October of 1940, Fred received his draft card at home at Mountain View, California. So everybody that was of age was getting a draft card in the early part of the 1940s. It didn't matter if, if you were of Japanese descent or not. We had no idea at that point that the United States would one day um, go to war with Japan. So 
the fact that you're in that age range and the fact that you're an American citizen made you uh, eligible for the draft. So in, in August of 1941, this would be before Pearl Harbor, uh, he moved to Dos Palos in the San Joaquin Valley and he was working at the Coda rice farm. He was loading and unloading trucks and stacking rice sacks. Um, but then after Pearl Harbor, he decided he better go back home, help with the family business because the, uh, the American government and those in, in leadership were super worried that we have all these people that have immigrated from Japan. Do they have loyalties still to Japan? We have to worry about them. So it's kind of one of the big black marks of what happened in, in World War II. But President Roosevelt came out with an executive order and he was going to take more than 100,000 Japanese American citizens remove them from their homes. Um, they have to leave their employments or the businesses that they have and, and basically putting them in internment camps. So Fred, he ended up being sent to an internment camp in Western uh, Wyoming called the Heart Mountain Relocation Center. And probably not the best living conditions. They were just building them to, to last temporarily. And uh, while he was there, um, his stepfather died. Um, on March 9th of 1943. So it's him and his mother. He didn't seem to feel, I mean, it's a bad position to be in, but he's, he worked on the camp newsletter and he wrote stories to encourage people to remain hopeful. He wanted to bolster people's morale. Um, he, he was allowed in June of 1943 to travel down to uh, Provo, Utah, where he was able to find a job. And uh, he had, enlisted in the army a month later. Uh, around this time of his enlistment, he wrote in his diary, because faith to me is a positive thing. I'm putting all my chips on the USA. So not something you might have expect from someone who's been uprooted from his home, his family's lost their employment and their house and sent to live in an internment camp in, in Wyoming. And yet his attitude is, He's putting his, all his blue chips on the USA. Because he was Japanese, he was ended up being assigned to the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. So, so those people that study World War II recognize that unit. It was composed of uh, Japanese Americans, originally from Hawaii, but then also from the States, from California. And that unit was sent first to fight in North not North Africa, but in Italy in, uh, let's see, would have been in June of 1944. So he didn't get there with the first wave. He was a replacement, but uh, he had, they needed replacements all the time because the men that fought in the 442nd Regiment were always in the thick of things. They were very brave and they had huge casualties all the time. Um, they just, were going to uh, be considered in any way that they could be cowardly. And so they were always in need of replacements. So by the time he was fighting with them in Italy, they had gone to the Arno Valley. And when he had, when they'd gone over that and, and crossed the Arno River, he was actually wounded. Uh, not enough to be putting out of commission. He stayed with his unit. And uh, in September, the, uh, <clears throat> Unit was attached to the 36th uh, Infantry Division, part of the 7th Army, and then it was sent to Marseille in southern France. Uh, and so after 
fighting in, in Italy for the summer and part of the fall. It was moved to be part of the uh, Operation Dragoon to invade France from the uh, south to create another venue for the Americans to uh, fight against the Germans in the area. They had to put sources, resources towards the south. So they moved up from the south. Um, one of the places by October that they were uh, placed in was the town of Bruyères in the Vosges Mountains. So I'm not French speaking, so I hope I'm pronounced as close to what they need to be. And they ended up uh, capturing the town and it was difficult fighting. Uh, the weather wasn't the best. The Germans had the high ground. They had a lot of experience. And so as unfortunately happens, they, they took a lot of casualties. It happened around that time um, that there was a lost battalion that gets talked about, which was the first battalion of the 441st Infantry Regiment. The general in charge of that division had sent this unit a little too far forward and didn't pull them out when he probably should. And so they ended up being cut off. Um, and what happened was he tried to send a few units to uh, relieve the battalion so it wouldn't be decimated or totally captured. But each time he sent a unit to do that, they were uh, repulsed and, and it, it, was, it was days and, and they were thinking, if we don't get those guys um, rescued, there's not gonna be any, anything left of them. So, so they brought it to the attention of the 442nd Battalion, uh, 442nd Combat Regiment team that he was part of and said, it's your job to, to go um, rescue that battalion. So that was in on October 27th that they were sent out to do that. There was a lot of dense fog. There was either rain or snow. There was poor visibility. The Germans had a lot of artillery. They would fire them so they would explode in the trees, creating shrapnel from the, the wood and it would injure lots of people or, or kill them. And it was just hard going to, to get through. Fred was in K Company of the 3rd Battalion. They were put in the lead to do this. Um, by the next day, their supplies were running low and they knew they could, there'd be continued heavy fighting before they could get to the last battalion. So he was one of 12 men who volunteered to, to, to break back towards their lines, get more food, water, and ammunition. And they hadn't gone too far before uh, they were under a heavy uh, German artillery barrage. And it was during that time that uh, Private uh, First Class Yamamoto was killed. Um, only of those 12 volunteers who went back for supplies, only four of them survived. And it was pretty hard on the whole company itself. The K Company started with 186 men, but by the time they rescued the Lost Battalion, the 442nd Regiment had more than 800 casualties with more than 200 of them killed. And so they expended a lot of effort to rescue what ended up being less than 200 men. Um, Fred Yamamoto was posthumously awarded the Silver Star for his gallantry during those final two days of his life. Uh, his, his body was initially interred in France, but in 1944, his remains were sent to the uh, Golden Gate National Cemetery where uh, his remains are now today. Um, he was survived by his mother, his brothers, sisters, and his step-siblings. Um, his, his mom 
actually didn't leave Heart Mountain in Wyoming until October of 1945, almost two months after the war was over, just when it was closing down. This 442nd Regiment was probably the most decorated unit of its size in military history. Uh, There's about 18,000 men still served in this unit of about 4,000 because they lost so many, they had to keep replenishing them. Um, they earned more than 9,000 Purple Hearts and even 21 Medal of Honors come to this unit. The Fred's just one of these many stories of the 442nd. About two, 800 of them died during the war. It might be great at some point if someone wanted to do just a special project to get all of those names done as a unit. Um, Fred Yamamoto uh, is, is a great example of what America is about. You come here as an immigrant or your parents come here as an immigrant with dreams of what you can achieve. And due to the conditions of, of freedom that we have in this country, it, with some effort and sometimes a little bit of luck, you can make something of it. And, and it's unfortunate that Fred wasn't able to do that, but the actions of him and the other participants in, in the 442nd Regiment, I think really opened the eyes to Americans who uh, at the start of the war were feeling the Japanese are the bad guys. And by the end, as, as these people's stories became better known, they said, wow, they, they made an important contribution to the success of our efforts in the case of the 442nd in uh, Europe. But we had some Japanese Americans that were working in the Pacific too. Mostly they would interrogate uh, Japanese soldiers that were captured, but they, they had a hard time in the Pacific because not only did they have to worry about being shot at by the Japanese, but they get too far away from headquarters and people said, that guy's a Japanese. <laughs> so it was, it was dangerous stuff to, to be serving their country. But the first class Yamamoto said, he's putting his blue chips with the USA. I would, I would really love to, to hear more about his mother. I mean, because immigrating to a new country, learning a completely different language and like trying to immerse yourself in a different culture and losing lifestyle, two losing two husbands, right? Yeah. And then like still, and then, you know, going to an internment camp and losing your husband there and uh, like just the fortitude of that woman to endure so much and then, and raise a son with the caliber of courage and uh, integrity that he, he had. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a woman, but that's that story that is kind of insinuated, but never told about the, the mom, uh, I think is something that just always perks my interest because it's like, you know, what kind of woman would she be to raise a son like that? And I mean, yeah. Makes me just think about that. She obviously raised him to love a country that wasn't her own. She's from Japan. She, she moved away at a time when you move from your country and you're probably never going back. And it wasn't like you could get on, on Skype or Zoom and talk to your family again. If she had any communication with her family, it was probably by letters that would take months between contact. So America was her country. This is where her future is going to be for her family. And her son... Um, he, he believed that and didn't just say it, but his actions proved it. In, in conversations that I had with my grandmother, who's an immigrant, uh, about America and what her thoughts on being an American citizen, um, she 
she said something once to me that I just would never never forget. But she said, I don't think you can understand how much I love this country. And to me, it was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm a young kid. I didn't think I really understood what she was saying. Um, and like, I'm like, well, why do you love it so much? She's like, the opportunities that it has given me and my children are immense. And so I think um, even though Private Yamamoto gave his life, I think as an immigrant, he understood something. Uh, I mean, he was obviously uh, born here, right? I, I can't yes. remember. Yeah. So, I mean, he was first generation immigrant, but I think he understood something that a lot of us who have been generationally here for uh, don't necessarily have a concept of, which is uh, this land where opportunity exists and it's worth putting all your chips in because of what it is, you know, that we stand for the rule of law and we stand for these things um, and the, the free man and, and the, you know, the, the individual being able to make a way for his family and make a difference. You know, I, I don't know if we can really understand that what motivated him to, to give up everything, you know, like, like he did. And, and it's totally fascinating finding these stories as our, our writers do this. When, when, when Randy Hervey got this name back then I, I was managing the database of all these 2000 names and my volunteers would say, okay, I finished the story. I'm ready for another name. So I would just hand out names to them. I'd email them a name and the little bit of information I had about them for my database. And, and they're just starting from scratch. And that's kind of what all our writers are, are going to do. You're just starting with the name and you're discovering what that person's life was like. And in the case of Fred Yamamoto, it was a very rich experience. And I'm sure, um, I think you actually may have talked to Randy in one of your uh, um, podcasts, but it, it had to be just, so so uh, a wonderful experience to say, wow, I'm really glad I spent the time learning about this individual. It's kind of an honor to be able to write his story because his story shouldn't be forgotten. And, and when people go to that Golden Gate Cemetery in San Francisco and they go to his gravesite, they're not just going to look at a name or a date. They'll be able to take their smartphone and they'll be able to read the story that Randy wrote about, Fred Yamamoto. And, and I think it makes us all better Americans to remember who these people were and not just look at a name and a date. Yeah. And something that just came to mind too, is like who these people were and, and why they gave up their lives for America. Because I mean, he, the, he enlisted from that internment camp, you know, that if I was being interned, by a country and my family was being had taken they had lost everything i i don't know if i'd have like yeah i'm gonna go sign up and fight for them you know i i, I don't know if i would be able to do that <laughs> like that's that's a really impressive to me that he was just like no actually this is worth fighting for even though right now they're clearly violating uh, you know everything they stand for and the actions that they've taken here but i'm i still think it's worth this whatever America is, is worth me giving up my life for. Like that to me just blows my mind to think about uh, that, that. I don't know what you call it, like level of patriotism or, or level of love of freedom, but he wasn't free and his family wasn't free. So that, it's just interesting. Absolutely. And uh, 
I think it's a, a wonderful example of what American can, can do as a as an idea and a thought. Is you come here and you're you're not Japanese, you're not Mexican, you're not Hungarian, you're American. Yeah. Well, I think one of the best things that we can do as Americans in today's world is to document this history and share it. So if this is something you loved and enjoyed listening to, uh, please share the podcast, share the project, uh, and uh, take the leap of faith and jump in and and, uh, volunteer. You never know what amazing stories you're going to find and um, tell and, you know, pay it it forward by... uh, you know, doing that research, doing that time to tell this story so that whoever gave their life for this idea of America, um, their life can continue to mean something um, beyond their short span of however many years they were here. So thank you so much for being with us tonight on the podcast, Don, and uh, we'll see you next time.